0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number 79.
1: Yeah, for real.
0: Couldn't remember what week we were on. Tim loves it when we have these discussions. It's
1: so fruitless and pointless, but whatever. You go ahead.
0: It's, it is episode 79, though.
1: Next week we will be octogenarians.
0: Beautiful. <laughs> okay. Uh, in this episode, Andy is going to talk about discerning right from wrong, but before we do that, we have some thinklings business to tend to.
2: Books and business.
0: Let's talk about some books and or other things.
1: <laughs> All right. I'll go first. So uh, we're recording this on Good Friday because of our schedules Monday. And so we had a really good chapel service uh, focused on the resurrection. Uh, By the time this podcast drops, it will be the day after Easter or the week, the day after the two days after Easter, it'll be the Tuesday after Easter. And so I'm going to recommend a book by Gary Habermas called A Case, The Case for the Resurrection of Christ. This is by Gary Habermas and a guy by the name of Mike Lacona. This is an apologetics book. And what you should know is that Gary Habermas is known far and wide. His specialty is the resurrection. So his arguments that God exists begin and end with the resurrection. And if you take my Apologetics class for me, I'll explain to you where I think this fits best in conversation. But as a believer, I do think this kind of a book would be interesting for you to uh, study. Habermas actually made quite an impact with this, and it's been something that's been discussed far and wide. And if you look at the early apologists uh, like Justin Martyr and others in the first, second, third centuries, a lot of them are using two, primarily two different arguments. Uh, the one is fulfilled, fulfilled miracle or uh, fulfilled prophecy, and the other is like miracles from the first century. And so here, the fulfilled prophecy, almost all of them talk about as the resurrection. If you think about Acts, um, the book of Acts and Paul, what did he do? He preached the resurrection. If he goes to a Jewish synagogue, he's going to reason with them that Christ is the Messiah. Um, if he when he goes to Mars Hill or a pagan place, he will tell this is how the worldview of Christian he's like starts with creation, but then what's his culminating point? It's the resurrection. So this is a, I think this is an interesting book. I have I have read bits of it and used it heavily, and I'm very acquainted with his thoughts. So I would heartily recommend it to you. Um. Yeah, so The Case for the Resurrection by Lacona and Habermas. I would hardly recommend it.
2: My book today is Mama Bear Apologetics, Guide to Sexuality. There's a previous uh, Mama Bear Apologetics book. This is like the second one. It was just released like three, six months ago. I've been trying to read more new titles, uh, and this is one I wanted to get a little bit familiar with. I I haven't read a lot of it yet. They start out with how... um, sexuality is being what? It's it's just kind of being shoved down our children's throats. Um and it's actually there's a lot of political stuff going on about it as well. Uh it's kind of remember the remember that in the Song of Songs you have the adjuration refrain, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. And our culture has basically rejected that advice and said uh, intimacy is a really good thing, and the sooner somebody can get involved with it, the better, because it's good. Um, it's a completely opposite message from the song. And furthermore, the culture's perception of intimacy is, of course, extremely skewed, and that is filtering its way into popular media. The authors start out with, uh, in the in the first in, in the introduction, uh, this kids' show, uh, which was promoting the sexual agenda of our culture. And how even in this kid's cartoon show, um, uh, there was like a, a girl and a girl that liked each other or something like that. So um, that's what this is about. And they walk through just the various things associated with intimacy. The chapter I really wanted to, to, to check out was chapter 12 on purity culture. There's a lot of discussion and writing about purity culture right now. And most of it is very one-sided against purity culture against the oaths against the everything which of course I've kind of been like well purity culture yes it had its problems but they were in favor of one thing that's really important called purity uh, and that's still kind of an issue so uh, this book actually was very balanced in their approach to purity culture there was one section I was like eh, I'm not sure there but um, the vast majority of the pretty long chapter on on purity culture was a was a I'd say it's the best, uh, presentation of, of the movement pros and cons, uh, that I had seen. So, uh, yeah, I've been pretty impressed with this so far. Mama Bear apologetics guide to sexuality. I'm probably not going to read the rest of it. That was the main component I was after. Uh, yeah.
1: I can't remember if we've talked about this before, but quick summary of what the purity culture got wrong or is that like a too long of an answer for a books and business?
2: Uh, there were several things that the purity culture got wrong. A focus on the external, uh, not the internal heart. That would probably probably be the big okay. thing. Uh, this book uh, dealt honestly with it in that the purity culture, for the most part, the, the major initial proponents of it, did a lot of things right. Uh, but then at the popular level and at the um, pastoral level, a lot of people used illustrations and analogies to try to encourage purity, I uh, wish really weren't true. And that's the stuff that got all the press. Um, but, but anyway, they kind of were like, you know, a lot of the stuff that was originally written was really pretty good. It focused on the heart and um, it recognized that somebody still had value even if they um, failed, you know, and, and those are a couple of the areas that purity culture kind of uh, didn't do too well in.
1: Okay, that's very helpful. That might be something worth Doing yeah a i could on. maybe put together you've done a lot of study notes. yeah mm-hmm. i know that that's been in the news a lot with josh harris's uh, deconstruction and apostasy mm-hmm. and there's been a number of people who have like rebelled against that and then when i've heard it i thought what well, i'm confused but like the the flower that gets passed around illustration and all that yep. i i it makes sense why that would be the problem or does she talk about the promise that if you just do it this way you'll have like a most fulfilling life ever
2: yes yep so that's one of the problems as well there's the illustration of like the duct tape and it's on your arm and it, you know, all these oh, illustrations yeah. it and off. stuff. Ripping. Okay. And then they, this idea, um, if you do mess up before you're married, then you're never, you're never going to be, or also if you go so far, then, well, you blew it. So might as well just throw in the towel. Uh, that was never, I think proclaimed, but, uh, it was kind of an implication in their effort to encourage purity. If somebody had gone to at least a level of impurity, then, some understood, well, I've blown it. I might as well just give up, give up, give up. Okay.
1: Thanks. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, speaking of impurity, I'm going to talk about Pride and Prejudice again.
1: Oh, my wow. How <laughs> about <laughs> that for a segue? That was a segue. <laughs> that was, I'm going to say that's up there on your segues, Charlie. So but...
0: I've got, I've got, um, I've got two lines. I, my character. So back up, Pride and Prejudice. It is, we're recording on Friday, April 15th, a week from today. Right now we'll be doing the drama. You
1: have two lines you said? I, so I'm is that read, hard to memorize?
0: I'm going to read two lines. I have more okay. than <laughs> kind of one. I, I
1: know. I figured. So I'm going to read Let's two
0: lines to you. And I'm, I'm not, I haven't checked to see if they're like, quote unquote, canonical, like they're from the book, you know, if they've been mm-hmm. altered, but I'm sure they're close. Just, I just want to, I kind of wanted to read them and see what Tim's thought
2: was. Good enough. On these lines. This that
0: sounds great. <laughs> so this is... <clears throat> So there's the two oldest sisters in the family, Jane and Elizabeth. Jane is kind of smitten with this man, Mr. Bingley. Elizabeth has drawn the attention of Mr. Collins, who's like an awkward old pastor. And it's weird, like just like a really awkward, like he wants to get married to anybody, anyone that moves, and uh, she doesn't want to get married to him. So then here's the dad, me, speaking to Elizabeth. So Lizzie, your sister is crossed in love. I find I congratulate her next to being married. A girl likes to be crossed in love a little now and then
2: crossed in love,
0: crossed in love a little now. and then. Can
2: you explain me crossed in love? Is that some old English? I'm not, idiom? I'm not
0: sure if there's like a connotation to, Are they just in falling in love. Okay. So like, that's the idea yeah. is falling in love. You will hardly bear to be long outdone by Jane. So like, what does that mean? Like you'll, Andy did you look it up
1: yeah it means jilted or humiliated here are a couple of excerpts and it's Mr. Bennett actually that they're quoting so jilted
0: or humiliated yeah sounds like it's a
1: legit yeah. quote it's cause... a mean it's it's an idiom for meaning being disappointed in love
0: disappointed in love
1: yeah so he's actually saying you're you're it's it's good for a girl to be jilted Crossed,
2: jilted because she
1: didn't get her lover oh but that makes sense with this. maybe Mr. that's
0: what's going on yeah because okay. like yeah because oh
1: yeah this is great yeah so you will <laughs> you will
0: bear you will hardly bear to be long outdone by Jane. So then the, the implication is like you're gonna be more upset. I don't know. More maybe? jilted. More jilted.
1: Wow.
0: Here are officers enough at Meryton to disappoint all the young ladies in the country. Let Wickham be your man. He is a pleasant fellow and would jilt you creditably.
1: <laughs>
0: so it's like the dad <laughs> is like poking fun at the daughter about like, why don't you fall in love and get disappointed? <laughs> Is that kind of the sense I'm I catching? I think so.
1: I mean that's what it sounds like. Okay. Unless
0: So that's that's an act one. That's an that, act one.
2: That was like really weird.
0: Yeah. The dad's the dad's like very disinterested being, and sarcastic. He,
1: okay, he's he's being sarcastic. I will say, your character is pretty awesome so, in like how he speaks.
0: <laughs> here's here's uh almost the very end of the play. So I think this is where like we're getting to Austin's like thoughts, like actual thoughts. So this is where Darcy and Elizabeth have proclaimed their love for each other. And okay, you need to ask my father. I say, I have given him my consent. Now I give it to you if you were resolved to have him. But I know your disposition, Lizzie, and you could be neither happy nor respectable unless you truly esteemed your husband. Your lively talents would place you in the greatest danger in an unequal marriage. Your lively talents would place you in the greatest danger in an unequal marriage you could scar- scarcely, scarcely, scarcely escape discredit and misery. So a girl with lively talents or maybe more talented than her husband or isn't excited by her husband, bad marriage. Tim, go. <laughs> what do we think about that?
2: Well, it's based on a view of femininity that I would say is just unbiblical.
0: What do you mean by that?
2: Can you read the quote again?
0: Yeah, let me open it again,
2: so I mean, what is it? What is biblical femininity? I mean, what does that so does just that look just like?
0: that that inner line, I know your disposition, Lizzie, and you could be neither happy nor respectable mm-hmm. unless you truly esteemed your husband. It's like an
2: anthropology issue too, because basically she is who she is, and she can't change who she is. So if she is placed in a specific situation, she will be unhappy. She's like a victim to her circumstances and situation. right?:
0: Yeah. yeah, And I, I also think too. what's interesting is this exaltation of this idea of happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, but so then the next phrase, your lively talents would place you in the greatest danger in an unequal marriage.
2: So in Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman, she has great skill, ability, and talents, and she uses those for the building up of her house, not the tearing down of her house. So I don't know how a woman who has great skill and talents could ever be, what, disappointed, whatever word they use there. So maybe verb maybe the, the lively
0: talents, maybe the, live. so the, your lively talents would place you so the subject is the, like your talents.
2: Yeah, these lively talents. What are these lively talents? Is this this independence? This,
0: this is her her wit and her, um, I don't know what, the, the spunk maybe? Okay. Where she's like, she's turned down other men. You know, like she didn't want to marry Collins oh. just to get married. She looks down upon her sister who runs off with this other guy. You know, she's like kind of, think about the... Um, the feminist early roots of feminism, like the intellectual independent woman.
1: She's very self-sufficient. She doesn't need a man in her life. Yeah. Man, Mr. Bennett is like the original Neil Clark Warren.
0: I don't know who that is.
1: He's the one who created eHarmony to equally match people so that they would have happy relationships.
0: Mm. There, it is interesting, though. Like They have done studies on this with like height, uh, IQ, and income the The higher on all of those metrics a woman places the like she she typically won't marry below. Huh. like they've done studies on like typically women don't marry guys shorter than them. typically women don't marry guys who have less education than them, and typically women don't marry guys who make less than them financially. It's interesting. an interesting dynamic that maybe lively talents such as those uh, might place them in great danger. <laughs> of, uh, of no marriages. But, um, anyway, (laughs) uh, you could, you could scarcely escape discredit and misery. It's like, if you, if you are more talented or intelligent than your husband, you're going to have a life of misery. What, what do you think about th- like? She, she, there's no chance of happiness in an unequal marriage. There's n- like, there's no way to solve this problem. You have to marry that one person. You can't marry the wrong one, Tim. That's the only way to solve the problem. Thoughts on that?
2: I mean, Charlie, I could go like in so many different directions, and I'm not sure which direction you're wanting me to go. I'm my just, just my like, mind's partly going to Ecclesiastes, and
0: I was working on my lines, and I was thinking through those lines, and I'm like, man.
2: This is so wrong.
1: Yeah. This is this is a doozy. I think he's actually looking to see what your face is going to do, Tim. I think that's. Is, a, I don't know if you noticed here, it. Tim's,
0: Tim's over like, here with a big old <laughs> mug, and he's just like like grinning from ear to ear, like kind of giggly.
2: So Ecclesiastes chapter two talks about enjoying the the um, the good things that God's blessed you with. It's a major theme within the book of Ecclesiastes, and this line. It portrays this union that she would potentially have with this guy as being unfulfilling so that she won't be able to enjoy life. So the very definition of a good life, a happy life, she's a victim of the culture or the situation or could be of this man, as opposed to looking at life from the perspective of, hey, guess what? There are all kinds of enigmas and problems within life in a sin cursed world and that you're not going to be able to solve. you're not going to be able to find a solution for. Well, how do we live in light of that? Maybe we should just look at the things that God's blessed us with and thank him for the food, for the drink, for the labor which he's given us. And those are the things that you can enjoy, according to Ecclesiastes 2, 24, 315, and chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, and a bunch of other places. And so that line makes her a victim as opposed to looking at the goodness that God has given and enjoying it as a gift from him, even if a situation does materialize that is unfortunate which that kind of fear like what's being portrayed there is why a lot of people don't marry because it could be very unfulfilling um and there are a lot of marriages that have problems well we're getting into all oh. very good Ooh. good qualification That's all good marriages entry. do have problems uh, because you have two sinners that are married to one another what is God doing, though, through those problems? Yep.
0: Sanctifying.
2: He's yep. sanctifying us. And yep. that's why God's original design was that you'd have a husband and a wife in the Garden of Eden. You, you Man's by himself. And what does he say? It's not good that man should be alone. And so he creates a woman. The natural way, I recognize exceptions, the natural plan that God has is that a couple would marry. And that is a sanctifying experience. And we see that through the wisdom literature, the Song of Songs particularly the most sanctifying component of uh, um, that God can use in a family is a husband or a wife.
0: Yeah. Uh, I will just say one more thing that uh, you should come to play.
1: (laughs) You should. It'll be good.
0: (laughs) And you can critique it while we act it. You want to give us a quick preview of the episode?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, I was reading that book a while back, Jerry Bridges' book, uh, The Pursuit of Holiness. And in his ninth chapter, he gives us, um a way to identify if something is a sin now he's not talking about um clear statements of sin like murder or adultery or uh taking the lord's name in vain or but what he's trying to say is there are some things in life that perhaps are not sinful in their essence but you engaging in them it would be sin for you and so sometimes your conscience can get all messed up in this area And so he has four helpful questions that someone shared with him. And so in this podcast episode, we're just going to talk about those. And I will say that these are the kind of questions that I think are worth putting them on a note card and shoving that thing in your Bible for your devotions and come back to them regularly. I do think it'd be very helpful for you. So that's what we're going to talk about. Let's have a conversation about sin. I have been, I finished a while back the book, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. And in that book, he is talking about, uh, in chapter 9, he talks about putting sin to death. So uh, how do you stop sin in your life when you see it? How do you address it? It's a very practical chapter. Uh, But an issue comes up, and I think we could maybe talk about it right here at the beginning. Some kinds of sin are easy to identify with a simple skim through the commands and the prohibitions of Scripture. So I want you guys to give me some examples of sins that would be easy to identify. They're obvious. They're not unclear. The scriptures say this is sin. So give me some ideas. Tim, you're OT. You probably got a whole bag of them here. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Okay. Man, I think that's pretty clear.
0: Worshiping other gods.
1: Ooh, idolatry. Okay, very it's clear. wrong.
0: Always wrong. Always Very wrong. Very clearly wrong. I
1: throw murder in. I mean, murder is just, it is what it is and you know it. Okay. What else is an easy to identify kind of a sin?
0: Well, if we're sticking to that list, <laughs> uh, covetousness. Okay.
2: We wanted to get off a list into another one. There's Proverbs 6 talking about sowing discord among the brethren.
1: There you go. Okay.
0: So stabbing people.
1: Yep. Stabbing people. This <laughs> is, a, wow, that's in a non-murderous way.
0: <laughs> well, I think you're trying to murder at that
1: point. I think Donald and Connell in their very first video talked about that. Really? Anyways. Yeah. Okay. So I think we get the idea. There's certain things that are obviously wrong. And so if I'm a Christian and I've read the Bible and I'm kind of familiar with it, even if I'm not super mature and not super discerning, I think I probably am pretty clear that murder's wrong and it's not an issue. Like, okay, I, sh- I shouldn't murder, I shouldn't rob banks, I shouldn't lie, I shouldn't deceive. But Bridges brings up that there's other sins that are more challenging to identify. And this is for two reasons, I think. This is me. The thing, I'm going to use thing here, and when I say thing, I might mean an action, or an attitude, or a desire, or a motivation. It's it's hidden even though it is sinful. So it's sinful, but it's hidden. And so we don't easily see it. And then the second reason I think some sins are hard to identify is because the thing itself, and this is where we usually hang up is not inherently sinful though. For me in my particular situation, it would be sinful. I think those are the areas that are sometimes a challenge for believers. Um, to know, like, what is a sin and what isn't. So, sometimes we walk through life and we get a vague sense of maybe shame or guilt or conviction by the Holy Spirit, and we aren't really sure why that is. Like, there's sometimes we're like, well, I'm not murdering anybody, check. I'm not deceiving anybody, check. You know, I'm not committing adultery or whatever, but you still got this vague sense of conviction of the Holy Spirit. So, part of the process of growing in godliness. Bridges explains is learning to see some actions that, uh, because of your motivations or other internal issues, they are actually sin for you. So, Jerry Bridges, as he was growing up and he was trying to sort this out, he had a friend who came to him and said, Hey, I actually have a formula for how to know right from wrong. And so, it's just four questions. So, for this episode, I just want to share the four questions. And all each one of the questions comes from a different verse in the book of 1 Corinthians. And to me, I think this is a challenging list of questions. Here's the reason. I don't think these are too complicated questions to be able to answer. But I think each one of them gets at the heart of the issue in a way that's difficult. So, listener, if you want to have a really good time, I mean, just a really fun time. Get on the internet and look up this phrase, David Powlison X-Ray Questions. This is a classic article by David Powlison where he gives you like 25 different questions to ask yourself that will reveal the heart of any situation in your life. And so those questions will be very similar to this. Now, I remember the first time I read these questions, it was in a counseling class uh, with my mentor, Dr. Newman. And... He said, hey, you, here, you read this for this assignment, and I can't remember what all was going on around it, but as I read the questions, I found myself squirming in my seat because they were helping to show me some stuff that was very difficult for me to see. So this list is similar. This is a little bit lower, a little bit uh, easier. It's just four questions. So here we go. We'll start with question number one. If you if there's something you want to do, some action event, something that you're wondering about, Jerry Bridges says you should ask this question. Is it?" helpful. Is it helpful? And he would say you would define helpful as physically helpful, spiritually helpful, and mentally helpful. And he, bring, he brings that from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And this is what the verse says. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Now, if I remember this passage correctly, uh, the Corinthians sort of had these catchphrases that they lived by. And one of them was, everything is permissible for me. So when Paul says this, he's quoting themselves and what they would say, and then he's bringing a counter statement. So when they say, everything's permissible for me, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, you know, whatever it is. He would then say, yes, but not everything is beneficial. So here's my question for you guys. If I'm going to ask if something's a sin, but the question I have to ask is, is it beneficial? why would that be hard for me to answer? Or why might I chafe at asking that kind of a question? Any thoughts?
2: Well, a lot of the things that we do, we do because we want them, because they serve ourselves. And, and so if it's a, something that's helpful, uh, the idea of it helping means that it must like serve a purpose for assisting either myself or assisting somebody else. So if it's simply something that I'm going, it's a, an indulgence that, uh, I am going to enjoy, uh, it's like a pleasure that I'm just going to enjoy, then is it necessarily helpful? I think it would exclude a lot of things that would then make us uncomfortable or, um, break our consciences. That's what came to mind right away. I don't know, mm-hmm. if maybe Charlie's got something or you have something to
1: say.
0: Can you restate the question for me?
1: Yeah, so the question that he says when you look at First Corinthians 6.12, it says uh, not everything's beneficial, so the question should be, is this beneficial or is this helpful? Why might that be challenging for us to answer, and or why might we chafe at a question like that?
0: So... I think I I would answer very similar to Tim. We would know we we might cognitively know like oh that isn't helpful but because of the way I want it like I'm not willing to actually decide it's not helpful because of how much I want it.
1: Yep. It's
0: like to mm-hmm. to accurately answer that question would be to take something away that I want.
1: Yes, and that's that's exactly what I was In- thinking.
0: And just to, to maybe be fair to the person trying to answer the question, in sin, you might be completely blind to your resistance, yep. to being honest about that question. Mm-hmm. It's like you you are completely ignorant. It's not that you know it and are willfully choosing against, but like you, you literally don't see that it's not helpful because you're blinded by desire.
1: Yeah. In fact, I think what I would say, I was going to say this at the end of the list, but I think I'm going to bring it up because you brought that point up, Charlie. I remember I remember specifically this verse a long time ago and thinking really it has to be beneficial like that would be an unlivable life and I almost discounted it but thinking about it <laughs> really it's just well I wouldn't want to do that there's a lot of things I'd have to give up um including some of my eating habits um but here when he says is it helpful the other element that's uh sort of challenging is helpful is a description. And so you have to finish that like helpful for what or helpful to who or whom or whatever. And so for me to say, is it helpful? Well, it might be helpful for me getting to follow my sinful passion, but that's not what Paul is saying. So I thought that was a a good question. It is not trying to make a pun here, but is helpful. But I think it's challenging because it's there's so many things when I want to know if it's okay for me to do that, I, I would say, is there anything wrong with, and then I fill in the blank. And if I don't find a chapter in verse, well, then it must be okay. So think about like, I'm going to use an extreme example, cocaine. Okay. Snorting lines. Is it wrong to snort lines of cocaine? And then someone might even protest. There's no Bible verse that even mentions cocaine. So what's your problem with it? But, and we all know that that's like being drunk in Ephesians five eighteen but i think here like does cocaine benefit you well what kind of benefit is paul talking about probably walking with the lord and serving him and following the great commission and submitting your life to him and i don't think cocaine really helps you with that it's not benefiting you in fact it makes things worse so that's question number 1 question number 2 does it bring me under its power does it bring me the action or the the desire whatever it is does it bring me under its power so Paul then says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, Everything is beneficial for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Everything is beneficial for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now here's where I'm very thankful for the wisdom of my parents. So growing up, my mom identified my personality early on as one of those kinds of personalities that lends itself. I think she would have said I had an addictive personality. Um, and I think I would say the yes, but I would, I would twist it a little bit and say, I have a, a personality easily given to idolatries. Now I think we all do, but there are some people with extreme self-control talent that helps them to be ambitious and get what they want in life. And then there are other people who just live for the things they desire. And my, my personality probably leaned toward that direction. Which means um, there are things that are probably perfectly lawful according to the Bible. But because I know what might happen with my flesh, I'm going to say no to those things. So for example, I'm going to use something close to home, coffee. I love coffee. But I have had to think before, could I give up coffee? And sometimes I've asked myself, man is my entire day being planned around that next cup of coffee. Now if that's now I know you, I'm a 42-year-old dude here. <laughs> I mean this is like how to how to diagnose idolatry. But in all seriousness there may be something in your life that isn't pers- on, on the face of it sinful but because it has mastered you it is a sin for you. So my story here is that I worked with a guy once who loved music. Now, I'm old, okay, so this guy had 700 CDs, okay? Now, today, it, it'd be like, I don't know, having, there's 10 songs, like 7,000 songs in your iTunes account or something, so that's like, what, $7,000 a dollar a song? He had a ton of music, and a lot of it wasn't good or godly music at all. And So we were talking, and through this kind of long-term friendship we had for at, at a time in our life, He started to get really convinced that he didn't necessarily think some of the music was wrong. But it dawned on him that all it was doing was consuming his thoughts, consuming his mind, consuming him. And so he made the tough decision to take all those CDs, put them in a barrel, and burn them. Uh, In my own life, I used to play a video game on my phone. Uh, Actually, with Tim, we were really good at it, Clash of Clans. And I identified in my life that that thing was taking me over more than I wanted it to. And so I don't think there's anything sinful about playing Clash of Clans. I actually think it's one of the best phone strategy games that's ever been developed. Uh, But personally, for me, I decided it would be better for me to remove it from my phone. So is it wrong? No. But for me, is it mastering me? Yes. Then then Paul is saying you should get rid of that. All right. Question number one, is it helpful? Question number two, does it bring me under its power? Question number three, does it hurt others? And so here he goes to 1 Corinthians 8.13. 1 Corinthians 8.13, where he says, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Um, there's a whole discussion about what this means. There's commentaries that will walk you through these two chapters, three chapters, excuse me. So I want to try to avoid that big question. And I just want to make this point. Do you notice... That when Paul asks if something's a sin, he's not only asking if it's a sin because it hurts me. It may be a sin because it hurts or doesn't help someone else. Now, this one's kind of, it's hard for me to think up an example of this. Um, But I do work with college guys, and I do know a number of them who, man, they love the video games. And so if I had like an hour off, my, my opinion now of video games is I play them socially with other people only. Um, but if I, if I meet a guy and I know that he, he used to be really, really into the video games, play, just playing them too much. And uh, he's really been trying to give that up. And I know that. And then we got an hour to hang out with him. Do you understand how it's not sinful to play a co-op video game with someone else? But I have to ask the question about my fellow brother in Christ. Is that going to help him? Is that really going to help push him forward? Even though it may not be sinful, is it actively helping that person? Now, that's a hard question because there's plenty of things that I might be able to handle, but I know my fellow brother in Christ or sister in Christ can't handle. And so then what's the protest? You guys, you tell me, what's the protest of that kind of a thought? What might someone really be ramped up about? It's fine for me. Why do I have to say no to it just because of them? Like, what what bothers a person or holds them back in that respect?
0: What bothers a person? It's like Like, it
2: infringes upon my liberty, my freedom to be able to live a specific
1: way. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you mean you're asking me to like analyze that?
1: Well, I was just like, why would someone be frustrated about that? And and Tim basically answered it. Well, but go ahead and analyze it.
0: Well, it's it's a restriction of their desire. Yes, and that it, so like they they have to give up something that they love because they're supposed to love the other person, mm-hmm. and the tension is like, do I actually love them enough to give it up?
2: Instead, can't they just mature and be a mature yeah. believer, a mature Christian?
0: But but okay, but that's the catch twenty two. Part of their maturing is me not causing them to stumble,
2: mm. or maybe I'm there to not help them to stumble but i'm just being a jerk i'll be quiet
0: (laughs) like me me giving it up and like loving them through that and like not not making a their weakness a test of fellowship like oh well i'm gonna do what i want which means i can't be around them because i'm doing this maybe giving it up and fellowshipping with them is the way or a means by which they improve they grow so I don't know if that makes sense or not.
1: No, that's exactly what I was wondering about. Cause I do think the thing they're being asked to give up in this context, the way we're setting up this discussion is it can't be a sinful thing, but there, but we don't want to be unselfish like that. And we don't want to have to deal with other people. So I know I, that's exactly what I was wondering about. So that's question number three. Does it hurt others? And then question number four, does it glorify God? Does it glorify God? So here he goes to 1 Corinthians 10.31, and again, we're skipping over the discussion in 8, 9, and 10, and that would be worth your time working through that to understand what's going on. But one of the culminating statements he says is this, So whether you eat, or whether you drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So in my opinion, Of all the three questions, this is the one that really knocks the wind out of you. Because often when I make decisions about how I'm going to live my day, I'm not asking how can I glorify God. I'm not actively thinking about that. I'm either just living my life according to what I want, or I have my own opinions or my own focuses. But to ask does it glorify God, I think that actually restricts even more than all the other three questions combined. If I'm looking to glorify God, then how I speak, how I spend my time, what I spend my money on, how, how I serve in church, how much, serve I, how much I serve in church, how much time I spend at home, how I behave as a co-worker, as a worker, as a family man, those things all take on a devoted-to-God element. And if I'm not willing to devote those things to God, then I I don't think I can say I'm living for the glory of God. So after he delivers these four questions, uh, Bridges says this, he says, As simple as this formula may appear, it is powerful in developing conviction if we are willing to use it. These questions can get rather searching." but they must be asked if we are to pursue holiness as a total way of life. So I thought those were very helpful questions, and I thought they might serve our listeners if they want to jot those down and use those for internal heart uh, heart inter- interaction or heart analysis. Do you guys have any thoughts on that before we close? I have maybe like one more thought to bring, but I just want to see if you guys have any.
2: So when I think of uh, some of the discernment. Uh, this discernment needed to, to discern what is right and wrong, which is what this is about. You know, discerning right and wrong from the four questions. Four questions, how to discern right from wrong. Discernment is a wisdom theme. And so my mind immediately, immediately goes to Proverbs chapter two, um, which would have different questions. Uh, but these four questions, I think, are very simple, as even Bridges said. It's a simple formula that can really prick our consciences and help us to discern what is uh what is the will of god Um, so i think that they're really helpful Uh, i uh, i think they're a good beginning point honestly as well when you go through life you're going to run into all sorts of decisions that there's not going to be a direct commandment for well god wants you to have wisdom on how to make those decisions in life Um, and the book of proverbs is a a key principle, key text there. And building off of your last point, does it glorify God? You know, I was uh, instantly going to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and how the Jewish people were supposed to have the eyes of, or the law of the Lord always before their eyes. You know, this uh, phylactery that they're supposed to stick on their forehead, the tefillin that the Jewish people wrap around their arm. And that misses the point. The point is that everything that you do, Everything that you see should be filtered through a biblical worldview. Um, so, your final point, like of glorifying God. And maybe my last point, you know, you mentioned the Clash of Clans. You know, for me, the Clash of Clans, you know, was it helpful? It was kind of, I don't know, it wasn't really helpful. I think there was a bit of an issue there. I, do, I wouldn't say that it was, uh, I don't
1: think I was under its power, like you mentioned. Yeah. And I don't think I would have described myself under its power either yeah. okay. until I gave it up. Until you gave it. And then up. looking back, I think yeah. it was a little more influencing me. Does that make sense? Not in the same way like cocaine or alcohol would. Sure, sure.
0: So I think, oh, sorry, I don't want to cut you off.
1: But then like hurting others, you know, with like video
2: games, that can be a real stumbling block for people. And so if you are liking it and encouraging others, I thought that was a great application point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even still when playing games, always trying to discourage, I tend to just discourage it in general. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me personally, it was really the last point does this glorify God uh, mm. where the okay. clash of clans kind of just crashed and burned and the spirit convicted me that I just needed to let that go and I noticed even a uh, a depth in my walk with the Lord after I gave up that uh, idol which is what I would call it now so anyway really helpful. Tips and encourage our listeners to think through it. And you guys got some things to say too. Go for it.
1: I just want to tag on the clash thing real quick, and then Charlie, you can jump in. So, Tim, I do, I do think there was something good to clash because we had that giant clan at our church, and it did spur some discussion and some community. So, and I would say that that's the challenge. Is there's, I think there's intermixed good points and bad points. And when I'm in it, I, I saw all the good points. And I would still say that they're there. But then when I pulled out and thought, I'm going to I'm gonna give this up, I did start to see, I think there was more control it had over me than I realized. Mm-hmm. And so then, so I would agree with you too about the glorifying God. I mean, how does it glorify God that I can, you know, knock a castle down and get three stars and all that. I mean, design issues, of course, we can think and do things, but I don't know that it brings eternal glory. So thanks.
0: So I would have... Two kind of thoughts. I'm not sure if this is the time to answer them. Maybe we have to come back to it. But thinking through, what does it mean that it has power over you? And there's a verse in Colossians, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And thinking through, what does that mean? The word rule there is arbiter. So it's actually the peace is the thing that's making the decision. Huh. And and so in a moment of trying to make a decision... Who's the one making the decision? It's like a really interesting way, like the peace of God is what makes the decision for you. It is what is the ruler in the heart. Someone else making the decision would be wrong. You need to let peace rule, let it arbitrate. And so if you're interacting with difficult people, but the person is a Mm -hmm. metaphoric idea, but the person who's making the decision is peace, what would peace always choose? Peace. Oh. So so that idea, what does it mean to be under the control or it has power over me? Clash of Clans gets to a point where I am now making decisions based off of clash.
1: Ooh, that's good.
0: It's the arbiter of my time.
1: That's really convicting. Yep.
0: And so I think you can play video games and it's not the arbiter of your life. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it gets to a point, can get to a point, and this is with any desire, where it becomes the arbiter. So, like, right now, there's a small group of us in the play. I don't know when this is going to air, but we pretty much go to Chick-fil-A, like, every night. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that sounds wonderful.
0: And, except for Sundays, of course, um, because it's not open. But, like, it's like, that almost becomes, like, a guiding factor of what, like, what are we going to do? We're going to go to Chick-fil-A. And it's like, could it get to a point where that's unhealthy? Like, Chick-fil-A has a power over me. Hmm. You know, and that's a cute little fun way of saying, you know, a video game, a person, yeah. Yeah. a substance, mm-hmm. uh, your fear of other people yeah. could a- absolutely arbitrate your life. And if you recognize, like, you're giving power, like, it, that other thing is making your decisions, it in and, it, in and of itself isn't wrong but for you you're idolatrizing something mm. it's completely ordering your life and so i think that's a to think through like what does that actually look like and then uh, i think i could say the same thing for the glorifying god it's like i think we have an idea of what glorifying god is but what does it what does it actually mean to glorify god and i do think there are a couple of ways that that phrase or idea could be used but typically we don't think it like God's glory when people see it it's a real thing it's like bright like magnifying like glory like the shekinah glory and it like that presence in the old testament always affected people 100% of the time if they were in the presence of the glory it changed who they were and so but when we think of like glorifying God uh, we almost like disconnect it from that idea. Like it's not a real presence. It's like part of the way I act. And I actually think we should probably merge those ideas back together that to glorify God is actually to display his to display who he is. Like not in a metaphorical, like what would Jesus do type of, like I'm actually like him and people see him through me type of a language, um, which I think is very Pauline. And so like, so again, thinking through like, what does it mean to glorify God? Like people, I am the ambassador, God making an appeal through me. I'm a vessel filled with his glory. Like that is glorifying God. Like his presence is here and, and tangible in my life. So then I'm going to go do this thing over here. Is Mm -hmm. that going to, you know, to use the illustration that Paul uses, is that going to throw a veil over the face of Moses and people aren't going to see it? Or is that going to make it more, Scene, and you know like the, I mean, I'd find it really hard to justify certain actions as something that magnifies yeah. me actually looking like Jesus to yep. other people, mm-hmm. like you know i I was about to throw out an example, and I thought that's maybe too crude or like just throw you know jumping overboard at that point, but common gray mm-hmm. areas, yeah, like th- you participating in that, does it actually magnify the mm-hmm. character of Christ? Like How would you justify it magnifying people seeing Jesus in your life? And if you really think that through, there's a lot of things we do that really aren't glorifying to God. Like they aren't removing obstacles to seeing Jesus. Mm-hmm. They're actually creating greater obstacles to seeing Jesus. So anyway, a couple of thoughts there.
1: Thank you for that. I think it's interesting that if I only had the Ten Commandments, I think it would be challenging, obviously, because I'm a sinner. Um, but this kind of a list is much it's I'm not saying that Ten Commandments don't matter. I feel like I'm gonna say that and I don't wanna say that, but I do want to say there's something really It's because they don't
0: they don't matter. Oh my word though. Ten Commandments don't matter. <laughs> except what? for the Sabbath.
1: These Shut <laughs> up. You're horrendous. <laughs> that was so great. Even the- okay. Well, I would say that there's something about this list that's more challenging, that is more revealing of where I'm fleshly, that is more um, clearly displaying where I'm choosing my own way and I'm not submitting to God. And it's when Paul said these verses in these ways that he did, it doesn't let you off the hook. And sometimes we have a really hard time interpreting this, but it's not because it's hard to interpret. It's because we can't find a way to interpret it away. So, listener, I think these four questions could be a great devotional study for you this week or the next week. Um, and I would encourage you to, to read these questions prayerfully. And I would even say this. I think for me, is it helpful? You know, Does it bring me under its power? Does it hurt others? Does it glorify God? it might be helpful for me to have a voice outside of myself help me think this through. Like maybe my pastor or a wise counselor or a wise Christian. Because I'm pretty good at deceiving myself. It's so funny, when you lie, often you're the one who's most deceived and other people see right through it. So, listener, these would be some great questions for you to ask this week in your walk with the Lord. And if you've got a partner, like an accountability partner or discipler or someone you're discipling, then these might be some good questions for you to go through together.